There are two reasons that we're going to stick with the passage in 1 Corinthians. The first is we want our children to know the Bible. And one great way to teach our children the Bible is to preach through entire books, even when it may seem that that topic doesn't specifically apply to children. However, in this passage, Paul links marriage and holy children together. And who to think that those two would actually go together. So we want our children to know the Bible. And the second reason is because this is the best passage in all of 1 Corinthians to teach on baptism. Because it speaks of our spouses and of our children being holy in light of one spouse being a Christian. Holy matrimony indeed. And as a Christian, our spouse and those within our homes are set apart through God's promise and a command that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 toward children, an explicit command, was never repealed. And we see that demonstrated today. It's not in circumcision as it was in the Old Testament, but in baptism as a continuation of that command. Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. We all have scads of friends who get married to those who don't share their commitment. A lot of us have scads of friends who, instead of getting married to those who don't share their faith commitment or Christians, they just decide to live with their boyfriend or girlfriend. So we all know what it's like to be able to relate to this passage. We have friends that are married that don't share the same faith, or maybe you have married someone and you weren't a Christian when you got married, and you became a Christian and your spouse still isn't a Christian. And so what are, how are we to operate in this larger context that Paul is talking about marriage and particularly about physical relationships in marriage? Paul uses that as an opportunity to address all kinds of different situations. And what Paul says, the teaching of the text is this. When one spouse becomes a Christian after marriage, marriage brings both a horizontal and a vertical covenant blessing to those in their home who don't yet believe. When one spouse becomes a Christian after marriage, marriage brings a horizontal and a vertical covenant blessing to those in their home who don't yet believe. So for us, this passage is raw because we have these relationships with people who who are married and don't share their faith commitment. We all know examples of the husband who goes to church because his wife stays home. She doesn't believe in Jesus or vice versa. 
About four in 10 Americans who have married since 2010 have a spouse who is a different religious persuasion. Compare that, that's 33%. Compare that with 20% who back in the 1960s would marry somebody of a different particular faith. Many of those interfaith marriages are between Christians and those who are not religiously affiliated at all. And in the Gentile community of Corinth, much like our own culture, when two people didn't share the same faith commitment, there, there are challenges. Remember in Corinth, in the ancient world, to be, an ex, uh, to be, a, to be a, a, a religious person did not mean so much as that there, were the, uh, that there were personal ethics by which your life was therefore constrained. What to be religious in the ancient world meant was that there were certain external rituals and rites that you had an obligation to do. And so it would be fairly common for one person to go and worship his ancestors and for his wife, right, who is also a pagan, not, doesn't believe in Jesus, to go and worship her ancestors. They could have competing faiths altogether because so much of religion back in the ancient Roman world was not internal, it was external. And the radical nature of Christianity was that when Jesus came, he took the outside and said, no, he goes inside. And therefore, your personal ethics matters. And Paul says, especially within marriage, like your personal, private, physical relationship in the hollowed halls of the privacy of your own home matters to the church, it matters to your children, it matters to the world. Why? Because ethics matters as Christians. It is not just external like the Roman world, but it's deeply internal. And today in our homes and in our culture and in Tulsa, we see all kinds of examples of people who, as Paul will call in his second letter, 2 Corinthians, people who are unequally yoked. And the image of being unequally yoked is putting two oxen together to plow a field and the oxen start driving different directions. And you know what that's like if you've been in that relationship where you're going a different fundamental direction. Your framework is totally different than your spouse's. And so Paul gives an encouragement to them. When one spouse becomes a Christian after marriage, marriage brings both a horizontal and a vertical covenant blessing to those in their home who don't yet believe. Let's look at the text together. First, it says, to the rest. Who are the rest? Well, Paul has already dealt with those who are single. He's already dealt with those Christians who are married together. He's already dealt with those whose spouse has already died. Well, what's left? Who's the rest? Well, the rest would be those who became committed in marriage, and then one spouse became a Christian after the marriage ceremony. And so to the rest, I say, he's addressing those who one spouse is married, one spouse is not. I mean, one spouse is, that was weird. One spouse is a committed Christian, thank you, are you awake? And one spouse is not, please catch me, be be, be alert. And he says, to the rest, I, not the Lord, what's going on there? When he says that, what he is, he is not saying that what I'm about to say is not authoritative. He's not saying that what I'm about to say is not divinely inspired. What he is saying is that I cannot think of any explicit situation or place where Jesus himself directly addressed this topic. So I, not the Lord, am saying this because earlier in verse 6, he said, not I, but the Lord, or verse 10, rather. 
Jesus explicitly addressed that the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried. That was coming out of the lips of Jesus. But here, he could think of no such explicit command of Christ's, but that doesn't make it any less authoritative as the apostle. And so he says, not the Lord, but, but I. This is me. I can't think of any explicit place where Jesus says this. And this is important because a lot of opponents to Christianity in the early church would say, yeah, you guys are just kind of making stuff up that Jesus says. Like, you want to settle a dispute? Well, then you drop the ace of spades and you say, well, Jesus said this. That ends the debate. And it would have been very convenient for Paul to have just said, as the Lord says. But he doesn't say that, even though it would have been highly convenient for him to do that. And so in the early church, they didn't make up phrases that Jesus said unless he really said them. And this is a great example of that. In the first century, Paul says, no, I can't think of any explicit place where Jesus says this. I, not the Lord. Does that make sense? When you read that, it can be confusing because you think, well, what does this mean? Should we believe this part? Yes, you should believe it. But Paul is simply saying that there is no explicit place that he knows of where Jesus directly addressed this issue, which would make sense, right? Because Jesus is ministering to the house of Israel where you are commanded to only marry in the Lord. You could not marry outside of Israel. It was forbidden. And Jesus' ministry is to Jews. And so it would make sense that Jesus talks about marriage with the of the covenant community. Are you with me? Okay. In Corinth, there were those, of course, who were downgrading the, 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 uh, the value of marriage. And, and Paul says, no, when one spouse becomes a Christian after marriage, marriage brings horizontal and vertical covenant blessings. And if you are a Christian, you should stick in it, stick it out. Because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you should break away from all the institutions of your life. Doesn't mean that you should go and live in some monastic setting. No, you should stay in those relationships. Stay in it. And if your unbelieving spouse chooses to leave, then let them. But you don't get that opportunity because you're the Lord's and you are faithful to the vows that you made. And marriage is an institution given to all of humanity and we rejoice when two unbelievers get married. In fact, I've married two unbelievers before. I will marry two unbelievers and I will be, of course, the Lord marries them. I'll officiate the ceremony. And, and I, will, I will marry uh, two Christians, but I won't be involved in a, in a ceremony where it's an unbeliever and a Christian because of this passage. So we should rejoice when you go to weddings and you celebrate two people who don't believe in Jesus and they get married because that's God's institution for the family. It's beautiful. I mean, if we would quit shacking up with people and get married, society would be stronger as we commit together to do it. So you should be the greatest proponents of marriage. We should encourage it. We should be involved and encourage people to consider getting married. So when you come to this passage, it makes relative sense. Verse 13 if a, a, a woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he wants to live with her, consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Not rocket science. Verse 14, the reverse. When an unbelieving husband is made holy, uh, sorry, is a, a, a husband who's an unbeliever um, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. You see both situations, right? I misread it, but you see both situations. The tough verse comes in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband 
is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Whew. Spin that one for me, all right? You want to preach it? Who wants to take this one? And otherwise, your children are holy. Gulp. Literally in the Greek, this is the way it reads. Is made holy for the unbelieving, the apistos, the one who doesn't have faith. Is made holy for the unbelieving husband in the wife. In other words, if you know foreign language, you know that sometimes you have to spin it around and the, gram the grammar tells you the right word order in your language. In the wife, the unbelieving husband is made holy. That's covenantal language. And the unbelieving wife in her husband. Otherwise, or therefore as a result, their children would be unclean. But now, in this situation, but now holy they are. It's like Yoda wrote the Bible. That's the way it reads in Greek. So, is made holy the husband who doesn't believe in his wife and the unbelieving wife in the husband. Otherwise, their children would be unclean. But in this particular situation, holy they are. And when we hear the word sanctification or made holy, we think about the process or the state after justification by faith, after you have a personal relationship with Jesus, right? Your sin is given to him on the cross and he gives you his righteousness. As we, as we asked one child this week and talking to them about them coming to the table, what happened on the cross? And the child said to us, well, we traded. <laughs> it was beautiful. I mean, my gosh, could there be a better way of talking about justification? We give, the, we give Jesus our sin. He's punished as the sinner and we, are, we receive his righteousness. And what happens after that? We are made more and more like Jesus through a process called sanctification. Is that what is going on here when the husband is made more holy? No, it can't be because then there would be another way of salvation and more people would get married. There's only one way to know Jesus and that is by faith alone. And so the word holy here does not mean sanctification in the sense that you've been justified, now you are to become more holy. The word holy in the Old Testament means to be set apart. It is ritual language. It is, it is, it is uh, ceremonial language, that they are set apart, that they are consecrated, that they are distinct, that they are different. And in this passage, you have here that for a first century Jew to read this and to see all throughout the Old Testament that the word sanctify or to be made holy always referred to people or to objects in the temple that were set apart to the Lord's. They would undoubtedly read this and they would know that this is purification language. That by virtue of my relationship with this believing spouse or by virtue of my unbelieving husband or wife being married to me, the covenant blessings that come to God's people are extended to his house. And they are all holy. Now, undoubtedly, every scholar is going to take this passage and say, because this is not speaking about um, this is some way that the unbelieving person can be a Christian, 
Of course, holiness, yes, holiness, if you live with an unbelieving, a believing spouse, you're going to become better, more moral. But the problem with that is I know a lot of people who are far more moral that don't profess faith in Jesus. Like, you want to put me up, like, take the average evangelical Christian and you stick them up against somebody whose religion demands that they be moral for their uh, salvation. On the outer, uh, from an outward perspective, they're probably going to lose, right? Like, um, our LDS brothers, they're incredibly moral and generous, but they're not Christians. So it doesn't mean that necessarily that because by virtue of being married to a Christian spouse, you're going to become more holy. It could, and hopefully it does mean that. But there are plenty of examples where somebody who doesn't believe has more common grace than somebody who does believe seems to manifest more special grace. What does it mean? It means that there is a covenant relationship that God has given to believers that is to be given to their children. Now, follow me here. When a law is made, for those of you who are attorneys, help me answer this question. When a law is made and the law is to be given in perpetuity, what must happen for that law to be changed or to be revoked? Two things must happen. Either that law is fulfilled and the conditions upon which that law was established have been completed or there's an explicit command to reverse the law or change it. Now, in Genesis chapter 15, God gave Abraham a very specific command that, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and this covenant is also going to be for your children. It's very explicit. And you are to put a mark upon them called circumcision. And that mark is to be for you and your, children, and your children's children, and it was to be in perpetuity. It was explicit. It was a thus saith the Lord command. And is there any place that we see that that law has been repealed. No. And so a Jew who's reading this text or who hears this text or who writes this text, as Paul, being a good Jew, writes this, undoubtedly he is thinking through covenantal language that they are ceremonially now clean because of their covenantal relationship. And it's important for the husband to become ceremonially clean. Because why? Because their children, because of God's covenant promise with Abraham, the child of a believing parent is ceremonially clean and the sign that you give to that child is not circumcision in the Old Testament. It's gone not just to males, but also now to females. It's gone larger. It's to be given to little girls too. And that sign is baptism. And it is a picture of God's covenant promise of his presence being poured out from on high to them, thus pouring. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon his people. His presence is poured out upon his people again and again and again in the prophets. And so you might say to me, well, is there any place I might find in the Bible where this still seems to apply to us, this covenantal language? And the answer is yes, there is. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter says in Acts chapter 2. And he told them that they must repent and be baptized. And then he said, for the promise is for you and your children. And Peter was addressing Jews who were used to having their children being included in the covenant. And how would they who hear him have interpreted what he said? Of course they would have assumed that children were part of the covenant. So stay with me here. This verse in verse 14, 
is you're either going to say that this applies to somehow these children are, are, are brought up under the encouragement of, of a mother or a father who believes in the presence of another uh, mother or father who doesn't believe, and somehow they are made more sanctified, that they, they bring them to church, they expose them to the gospel. Yes, that is certainly true. But it's far more than that. This language in Greek is covenantal language. In the spouse, they are made holy. In the believing partner, they are set apart. That is Genesis 15 kind of language where the child is set apart. He becomes a visible member of God's covenant community. Now, in our church, there are a lot of people who, who take this idea of pedo communion and they're still chewing on it. And I, and I just want to confess to you that, man, I grew up a Baptist and this was hard. And my head kind of spun whenever people started talking about the Old Testament and baptism. I didn't really get it. But if you begin to think like a Jew as you read the New Testament, who has come to faith in Jesus, you begin to see this cascading effect of language all throughout the Old Testament about children being included in the covenant. And the New Testament then it explodes with it. Is there an example in, the, in, the, um, in Scripture that you can think of where there is somebody who um, becomes converted and God then views their family differently. Any example you can think of? In the New Testament, of course, we have, we have Lydia, we have the official, uh, officials whose son is healed, who's baptized. We have Stephanus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Philippian jailer, those are examples. But in the Old Testament, you have the example of Hosea, whose son is called not my people, and the name of her son is changed to my people. Or you have the story of a, a harlot, a lady of the night named Rahab, who becomes a Christian. And when she becomes a Christian, she believes in the covenant promises of God. Do you remember that story back in, 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 uh, in Joshua chapter 7? Joshua chapter 2 at first. Um, you know, uh, remember the spies come into the land, they stay with Rahab, and the Lord says, go and find Rahab. And um, uh, uh, and she, she, she hides the spies so that they can't be found. And, and they say to her, we want you to give us a sign, a sure sign. And she lets down the scarlet window when Jericho is, is toppled. And they go in and they say Rahab, and they save her family because of the scarlet cord, a picture of the blood of Christ, a picture of Jesus' saving blood. And then later in chapter 7, when they actually go and get her, it says, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers, the horizontal blessing of the covenant, and all who belonged to her. And they brought her and all of her relatives and they put them outside the camp of Israel. And then later it says, and Rahab the prostitute and her father and her household and all those belonged to her. Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from uh, whom Joshua sent to spy out the land. So there's an example in Scripture of somebody who becomes a Christian who's, who God saves their entire family because of their faith in a physical way. And in the same way in the New Testament, your children, your household, is set apart for God's glory. And they are made visible members of the covenant of his people. When we watch Sadie 
read in a few moments be baptized. We get to celebrate her receiving the mark of being included into the covenant community because as her parents, Eric and Jamie, join our church, she is set apart, unclean, clean. Why? Because the covenant promises given to Abraham are still in effect toward us. Yes, Jesus, Jesus himself fulfilled everything that the ceremonial law said needed to be done for our salvation. Everything. But there's an explicit command to Abraham that has never been revoked or repealed. And any good lawyer knows that unless a law is revoked or repealed, it still is in effect. And it is. And the sign has changed from circumcision to baptism. And in baptizing her, we are bringing her into the visible community of faith, which you know what? Is the same thing it means for adults. They just happen to have faith. They believe and they repent and believe and are baptized. But the sign of baptism signifies the same thing. The Holy Spirit, God's covenant promise being poured out upon them, thus by pouring from on high down, and that they are set apart as a visible community of faith. And because they believe, they can then come to the Lord's Supper, which we will have and which we usually have every week, except when we have baptisms because we want to honor one sacrament at a time when we're able. So, to those of you who are in marriages that you um, have an unbelieving spouse, I just want you to know that as your pastor, I know that that is extremely, extremely hard. And the grace of the God has opened your heart to believe. Glory, hallelujah. And you have a spouse that will meet your needs far greater than your physical spouse ever could. And his name is Jesus. He loves you. He is with you. And he has given you the support system of this church to walk in hope. And you are to invest into that marriage because you gave your word. And you're only, as we often hear, as good as your word in the eyes of the world. And so you lean into that marriage. And it's going to be challenging and it's going to be hard, but we're going to help resource you and encourage you. And God's word helps do that to comfort you, even in this passage. But if your spouse wants to leave you, then it says you are able to let them leave. But it's their decision to walk away, not yours. And if you have children, please hear me. If you have children in this church and they are not baptized and you're not, re not yet ready to have them baptized, that is okay. But I would encourage you to live in obedience to God's command, to have them set apart as the promise to Abraham now is passed down to us as members of his church. It is a blessing to them. They are Christians, even though they don't, yet profess faith. They are a part of the covenant community. And when they place their faith in him, then those promises become theirs. And we get to celebrate that with them coming to the Lord's Supper. We're going to treat your children, in other words, like Christians, to say it better. We're going to assume that they're going to believe until they show us otherwise. We're not going to assume that your children are not Christians unless they prove us wrong. And so we're going to flip it on its head and we're going to treat your children like treasured possessions of Christ. Because why? Because Jesus says, let the little children come unto me. And all throughout the Old Testament, the Lord has a special place for the children of Israel. And they are to receive circumcision. They are to be set apart from the world. And we pray one day they place their faith in him. And we celebrate that with him coming to the Lord's table. So when you look at 1 Corinthians 7, 14, it's a very tough issue. It's a very tough verse. 
unless you understand the role of Christian baptism in the life of children. Do you see that? Is it beginning to make a little bit more sense of how children of one believing spouse can become clean or become holy? That doesn't mean that they personally place their faith in Jesus yet. We're going to pray that they do, but they are consecrated, they are set apart because God ordinarily uses families to bring our children to faith. So let's pray for those children. And as I pray for those children, would you also pray for your own heart? The Lord will give you strength in the midst of a marriage where you may be the only Christian. And you have a family and you have a people who are going to commit to help you. You are not alone. And that's one of the reasons why community groups in this church are so important. And you should be in one. You should move toward one. And if you're in the midst of marital discord where you were wondering if your spouse is a Christian because they sure don't act like it, lean into Trinity. Come. Together, come. If they are willing to come with you, come. And allow the Holy Spirit to work on opening your hearts to greater and greater joys of knowing Him as a Father who loves His children. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.